Let's not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Please take your Bible and open it to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians at the, at the back of your Bible. If this is your first time looking at the Bible, or there's a, a Bible in the chair in front of you, you can grab that Bible, and you can turn to page 1044 and 1045 to the book of Colossians. We're two or three sermons away from finishing our series here in Colossians. And... Um, Yeah, and so and so uh, uh, this week we're we're doing this last really the last part of the body of the of the letter, and then we're going to do the final greetings, and then we'll do an overview sermon uh, to finish out the book. So if this is your first time looking at a Bible, when I say Colossians four, that's the big number, and I say four verse two, the small numbers are the verse numbers, and you can follow along like that. All right, Colossians chapter four, beginning in verse two. Devote yourselves to prayer, stay alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, so that God may open a door to us for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains, so that I may make it known as I should. Act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us in all wisdom. Father, we need you this very hour. I need you to preach, and we all, including me, we need you to help us hear your word. We need you to help us open our hearts to your word. We need you to help us be convicted by your word, to see the glory of Christ, to long for him, to hate sin, to repent, to have specific ways you're calling us to trust Christ and follow Christ and obey Christ from this passage. And not only that, Father, we need you to shift our focus or our confidence our, our place of confidence in terms of where we are going to make an impact or how we're going to make an impact with our lives for all eternity. And so, Father, use this passage to shift us and give us a great confidence that we can have a great impact personally and corporately for the global movement of the gospel spreading to all ethnic people groups. Encourage us and strengthen us from this word, we pray. Give us life in your ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When we do guest lunch and we have guests, I ask how long they've been a Christian. And then after that, I say, hey, all Christians want to make an impact for Jesus. We love Jesus. We want to make an impact for Jesus. We want the gospel of Jesus to spread across the whole globe to all ethnic people groups so that people would know God and live with, their, with his joy, hope, and love. Not only in this life, but for all eternity. And we know that through converts and disciples who join churches and start spreading to their neighbors and start cooperating there to spread the gospel to all nations and to unreached language groups, that God is going to get this work done. And we get to have a part in it and make our lives count. We don't want to waste our lives. We want to see, this is a weird way of thinking about it, but Colossians already introduced this to us, we want to see the gospel grow. Have you ever heard about that, the gospel growing? We think of the gospel as a message. Can the gospel grow? Colossians 1.6, right here in the book of Colossians, if you just turn back there and look at Colossians 1.6, 
Speaking of the gospel, the very last two words of verse 5, the gospel that has come to you, the gospel is bearing fruit and what? Growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. So the gospel grows. How does the gospel grow? By spreading, by people hearing about it, by people believing in Jesus, loving Jesus, and then telling other people about it. The gospel is growing. And so we want to live for this global gospel growth. We, like Paul, in Colossians 1, 24 to 26, Paul says something that's very radical and crazy, not only to the world, but to many churches, sadly. Paul says in verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am filling up, I am completing what is lacking in Christ's affliction for you, for the body that is the church. And he says, I become the servant of this gospel, According to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known or for the gospel word to fully grow. Paul was sold out for gospel growth such that he was willing to suffer. Not only was he willing to suffer, he was rejoicing in his suffering. He was choosing to suffer and fill up the sufferings of Christ in spreading the gospel. Now, did Paul waste his life or did his life really count for eternity? We know that Paul's life really counted. And when we look at Paul's life, we think, well, I'm no Apostle Paul. And that's true. None of us are the Apostle Paul. But I don't think God calculates impact the way we calculate impact. We think that we need to have some extravagant, earthly, obvious fruit to say, man, that person's life counts for Jesus. And I just want to flip that on its head this morning in your life. We think if we're going to live the fully Christian life, fully impacting and like making this huge impact with our lives for the gospel, we need to become a missionary. We need to become a pastor. We need to lead an association of churches. And by doing that, we're going to make this huge impact for gospel growth. So I need Jesus, but I also need this earthly, obvious platform from which to make my life count for global impact. That's a lie. That's wrong. Now, that's similar to what the Colossians were facing. Remember the Colossians? They wanted to live a full life, right? They want to live the full and fulfilled life. So I got Jesus, but I also need to follow old covenant regulations. Or I got Jesus, but I also need these angelic visions of the heavenly temple so I could get to really worship Jesus. Or I have Jesus, but I need to really um, have these ascetic, disciplined practices to really go hard after Jesus so that I really live the full and fulfilled life. And Colossians 2 was all about destroying that. All philosophies and human traditions and church traditions that lead you to marginalize Christ as the center of your fullness and fulfilled life is wrong. Everything needs to be based on and according to Christ. And so we have a version of that with global impact. I need to be a pastor or I need to be a church leader. I need to have a large platform. I need a lot of social media followers. I need a lot of people following my blog or my podcast. Or I need to do something in that way to have a global impact, to make my life count. And that's a mistake. This passage gives us the path forward. So you want your life to count? You want your life to count for eternity and make a global impact? Not in the way that the world or even the church world says, man, that guy's influential or that sister, she's really making an impact. They're going to write a biography about her. That's not the way it's done. Colossians 4, 2 through 6 is the way it's done. So here's the main goal of the passage. 
live the full life for global gospel growth by praying consistently and walking wisely. By praying consistently and walking wisely. I remember hearing some preachers say things like, you know, the Billy Grahams, and some of our members actually got saved through Billy Graham, um, through his ministry directly. Um, but some people say those are the ones who are going to be at the front of the line. But Jesus has, has famously said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Now that doesn't mean the ones who have the most impact are going to be last. What that means is you cannot calculate what last and first is. It's not up to you to determine that. Listen to God, follow his word, and you will and trust in Christ, and that is the full and fulfilled life, okay? And so this passage gives us two things to live that full life. Pray consistently, verses two through four, and verses five and six is walk wisely, okay? Pray consistently, two through four, verses two through four, walk wisely, verses five and six. I hope you see it there. Now, our world thinks that prayer does nothing, that it's just some sentimental thoughts and that there is no God out there. There's no one who's actually hearing us and engaging us in us, engaging us and wanting to respond to us. That's why when people say thoughts and prayers, right? You see that a lot during tragedies. Our thoughts and prayers with this person, our thoughts and prayers. And then you have other people who critique that and say, thoughts and prayers means nothing. We need action. But those people, the world, they don't think that there's a God who's actually hearing us. Who's actually, who's actually listening to the requests. He's powerful to control, to, con, um, to control the world, and he actually responds to our actual prayer requests. Jesus tells us to ask and we'll receive, to seek and we will find, to knock and the, the door will be opened to us. He tells us to keep seeking, to keep asking, to keep knocking. He tells us that our Father in heaven hears us and desires to give us good gifts and provisions as a response to our praying to him. Okay, so if we're going to pray consistently, I want to point out four things here, four aspects of praying consistently. You have the command first in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Devote yourself, yourselves to prayer. Or if you have an ESV, continue in prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer. You can translate this, persist in prayer. So this first aspect is persistence. Okay, if you're going to pray consistently, you need persistence. Persist in prayer. Keep going on in it. Don't give up. When you fail, get back up and pray again. When you can't concentrate, keep trying. Or like one person says, pray until you pray. You know what that's like, to pray until you pray? You're praying and you're not breaking through. It feels like you're just kind of meandering and wandering and then sometimes God really helps you to connect with him and then you feel like you're really praying. You're persisting in praying. You're, you're, staying, you're sticking to it. You're being devoted. You're persisting in prayer. I like this other translation or this other uh, way that gets at the Greek word. It's be um, busily engaged. Let's just think about that. Be busily engaged in prayer. Are we busily engaged in prayer? We know what it means to be busy, right? We all have things that we don't do because we are busy doing something else. I'm sorry I can't get to that because I am busy. I wasn't able to exercise this week because I was too busy at a birthday party yesterday for one of our church members' children. I was busy with something, so I neglected something else. I had to pass on something else. One thing bumps out another because our time is preoccupied by what we are busy with, right? 
And Paul calls us to be busy praying. I'm too busy to do that other thing because I'm praying. Is prayer something that is so non-negotiable in your life that it causes you to bump out other things because you're too busy praying? Sorry, I can't get to it. It's my prayer time. I don't have time for that task because I, I am busy praying. Or are we too busy with other things? That prayer is the thing that gets bumped out. Persist in prayer. Be busily engaged in prayer. Continue in it. Be devoted to it. Committed to it. It should be a scheduled part of your life. So schedule it. Make sure you do it. You don't neglect eating. You're busy eating at times and you can't do certain things because you have a meal. You don't do things at 3 a.m., most of you, and 4 a.m. because you're busy sleeping. You, 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 whether it's scheduled or not, you're there. It's a regular rhythm. Prayer is to have that kind of constancy, consistency, and persistence. So let me give you some suggestions for application. Uh, if you're going to persist in prayer, pray with other people and then pray on your own. When I say pray with other people, come to Sunday morning. You're here. I'm, I'm preaching literally to the choir here. You are here this Sunday morning. And what do we do on Sunday morning? We spend probably 20 minutes praying, don't we? Rock had a pretty long confession of, of, of sin this, this, this Sunday, right? Natalie prayed. So we praise God. We thank God. We're, we're doing a long prayer petition. Persist in prayer. Spend time in it. Plan on coming to our long Sunday morning gatherings and pray. And then come back on Sunday night. A lot of you do come back on Sunday night. We spend another 15 to 25 minutes praying again on Sunday night. Praise God for you coming faithfully here Sunday morning to pray, this morning to pray. Praise God that many of you come back on Sunday nights and are coming back tonight to pray. So pray with other people. Pray on the phone. Call people to pray. Text a prayer. One of the things I love about iMessage on my iPhone is that I can pray a prayer. When someone says pray for me, I can just press the voice memo and start praying. And then send them a prayer so they can hear me praying for them. There's got to be a way to do that with the non-iMessage people. I don't know how though. <laughs> um, meet up with other people and pray. Pray with your household. Pray with other people. So when we say persist in prayer, I'm saying pray with other people regularly. And then pray on your own. Have a time and place to pray and keep it. Jesus would get away and pray. I'm doing my devotions through the gospel according to Mark. That's one of the books I'm reading. And I just read Mark 1 this week where he got away from the crowd early in the morning to a desolate place so that he could pray. I'm going to actually read that passage to you at the very end of the sermon. If you don't plan to pray, you don't pray that much. I don't know your plan, but I do know this about you. If you don't plan to pray, I do know that you don't pray that much. Of course, pray throughout your day. Pray without ceasing. Pray while you're doing other things. But also have undistracted and unhurried times of prayer. Have hurried times of prayer. Have half prayers where you're doing a task and you're multitasking. But don't only have that as your prayer time. And then when you pray, if you're going to grow in persisting in prayer, do, you know why we do these prayers on Sunday? One, because we want to pray to God, but we also want to disciple you with these categories of prayer. So when you pray, if you're like, I don't know how to pray that long, just say, okay, set a timer on your phone, 20 minutes or 10 minutes, and say, for the next two and a half minutes, I'm just going to praise you, God. And just pray a prayer of praise for two minutes. Then 
Say, okay, two minutes are up. Next two minutes, I'm going to confess sins. Then just think about sins in your life and start confessing sins. Then take the next few minutes and thank God for the different blessings in your life and the answered prayers. And then take the last few minutes to ask God for things, to pray for yourself, to pray for your household, your neighbors, your, your church family, the church as a whole, the gospel mission going out. So take these categories and make this part of your daily prayer. Okay, that's the first one is persistence. The second one, look at chapter, chapter 4, verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it. With Thanksgiving, let's just talk about staying alert in it. So the second thing for praying consistently is pray with watchfulness. Okay, the key word there is watchfulness or alertness. Now, if you can, keep your bookmark here and turn to Mark chapter 14. If you, don't, if you can't turn there fast enough, you can just listen. But turn to Mark 14, verses 34 to 40. I chose, you say, PJ, why did you say watchfulness? It says alert in the CSB. Does anyone's translation say watchfulness or watch? What translation is that, Reggie? The NIV. Say it with pride, Reggie. The NIV. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, the NIV. Okay. The NIV. Now, I chose watchfulness, but it says alertness. Why did I do that? I did that because of this cross-reference in Mark 14. So look at Mark 14, verse 34. It says this. Jesus said to them, now this is Thursday night. Jesus is about to get crucified. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. They're about to arrest him, and he's about to die, right? So Jesus is stressed out. This is the most stressed out Maybe one of the weakest moments in Jesus' life, okay, where he's feeling weak, trembling, where he prays the same thing three times, and he's scared almost literally to death about what's about to come, the cup, right, that he's asking to be taken from him. But in the midst of Jesus' uh, stress and um, consternation, verse 34 says, he says to his disciples, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. So what does he tell them? What? Remain and what? Remain here and what? Stay awake. Okay. Okay, that doesn't say be watchful. It's watchful in, in Matthew. Sorry. <laughs> Stay awake or, or be watchful. He went a little farther, fell to the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping. He said to them, he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? You're not watchful? Couldn't you stay awake? Couldn't you stay watchful or alert for one hour? Stay awake. Be watchful. Stay alert and pray so that you won't enter into, into what? Temptation. It wasn't just about Jesus here. He wasn't just thinking about himself here. He's actually thinking about them. He needs them to stay out of temptation. And how do you stay out of temptation? By praying. But to pray, you need to stay what? Awake. awake. Alert and watchful. The spirit is willing, he says, but the flesh is weak. Once again, he went away and prayed and saying the same thing. And again, he came to them and found them what? Sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. <laughs> they kept feeling convicted. What did they say to him and he kept rebuking him? You, you feel this way, right? They did not know what to say to him. I got no excuses here. I'm just tired. I can't stay awake. I'm trying, right? Um, the call here is to be watchful, to stay awake and alert so that you don't enter into temptation, but continue to draw near to God. 
Now, sometimes Francis and I talk at night before we get sleepy. We have this pillow talk time where we just try to talk as long as we can until somebody gets sleepy. And then it gets to the point where one of us gets sleepy and we're, we're, we're able, like, wait, what did you say? Sorry, I was falling asleep. Or I start talking and I don't even know what I'm saying anymore. I'm like, wait, what did I just say? <laughs> was I saying something? I said something right now, right? Um, that's not being alert, right? That's not staying awake and talking. And what is prayer at its core? It, it's doing what with God? It's talking to God. That's all it is, right? Praying is talking to God. And so in the same way that I try to talk to my wife, but when I get sleepy, and I don't feel guilty about that. She doesn't feel guilty about it either. It's, we're about to fall asleep. But um, we're talking, and then you start, you start losing alertness, and you don't know what you're saying anymore. You're not really listening. When you pray to God, when you talk to God, don't, don't pray like that. Pray with meaningfulness and thoughtfulness. Think about what you're praying because you are engaged with God. So are you engaged with God when you're praying? When you're talking to God, are you thinking of what his word and spirit might be leaning, leading you towards? When I pray for you, you know, we pray through the members list. Even when I pray Sunday morning for you guys and I have a list and we're just going through the members list, right? I'm just thinking one about you. I'm thinking about your situation and what you've told me, what I know about you, what I can say publicly, and what God's word says. That all takes watch, that takes an alertness, right? What's going on in Ross's life? What have I been reading in the Bible lately? How does the Bible, uh, what can I ask you, Lord, for Ross right now that would be really helpful for his life? You got to be paying attention. You got to be awake. You got to be watchful and alert to pray like that. Okay, so to, to stay alert in your prayer. So praying watchfully means uh, praying for the burdens of your heart, but it's shaped by what the Bible gives you. So when we're reading Colossians, we should be praying that we continue in Christ, that philosophies and traditions don't overtake us, that Christ is not marginalized from us, that we don't think that the full and fulfilled life is Jesus Christ plus some other thing that actually pushes Christ out of the center. The burdens of the Bible give us burdens to pray. The burdens of people give us burdens to pray. And when you think about them together... You can pray with alertness, biblically informed prayers for specific situations that you and others are in. Watchfulness, alertness in prayer. So stay alert to the specific needs or the angle or some leads that God might even be prompting you to when you're praying. This means pray specific prayers. Don't always pray vague and um, vague prayers that are too general and unfocused. That's okay sometimes, but pray, try to be specific. May ha um, um, this, this passage about praying with alertness might be saying, pray because Christ is coming soon. You need to be alert to his coming. That's a possibility as well. But let's move on. So you're praying with persistence. You're praying with watchfulness. Thirdly, you're praying with gratitude. Look at verse two again. You're praying with gratitude. Back to Colossians four, verse two. Devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. This reminds you of 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18, where it says, Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. And it says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Pray without ceasing and give thanks in everything. I'm talking to God all the time. I'm giving thanks for everything. So every time I'm praying, I'm praying with thanksgiving because everything is a reason to be thankful. Philippians 4, 6 also gets at this. And I pray this one a lot for, for many members in the church. Philippians 4, 6 says, don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Notice that you're, you're worried about something. You're stressed about something. You're discouraged about something. Pray that to God with what? Thanksgiving and the peace of God. 
that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. This means, this is another reason why he might be telling us to pray watchful, like with uh, alertness and watchfulness. Because sometimes when you're praying about a trial, all you see is pain. All you feel is discouragement. You can't even see the silver lining around the dark cloud. And that's okay at first. That's okay at first. But it's not okay to stay there indefinitely. At the very least, you could say, God, thank you for this dark cloud. And even though I can't see silver lining, I know that somehow you're being good. So thank you. But even that takes an alertness, right? To prompt you to say, I need to be thankful to God somehow for this real big difficulty in my life. That takes alertness and watchfulness to pray with thanksgiving. And to pray with thanksgiving, you need, you need a theological, you need a, a, threefold, tri, uh, a, three, th a threefold theological foundation, okay? So I'm going to give you a threefold theological foundation now that you need to give thanks when you pray. You ready? Three planks to this. Um, you need all three or else you can't really pray thankfully from your heart. Number one, and I'll, I'll, I'll do it in the form of a question. Do you trust that God is ultimately for you, for you, and for your good, yes or no? If you're a Christian, do you trust that God is ultimately for you and for your good, yes or no? Yes. yes, okay. You need to believe that God is good and that he wants to be good toward you. Okay, you need to, you can't thank God if you don't believe that. Secondly, do you trust that God is powerful and can do whatever he ultimately wants to do? Do you believe that, yes or no? Yes, okay, you do. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So you need to believe in the power of God. You need to believe in the goodness of God for you. You also need to believe in the power of God that he can do what he wants to do. But you need one more. That is not enough. There's one more plank that you need. Does anyone want to guess? Wise, okay, that's a guess. Uh, yeah, and that's right. Do you trust that God is wisest? in knowing what is truly best for you. Do you believe that God knows better than you with what you need right now in your life? Do you trust the wisdom of God? You need all three or you can't thank God from your heart. You can have shallow thanksgiving. You can have a heartless, half-hearted thanksgiving to God. But if you want a deep, real, God, thank you, even in this trial, thank you, you need all three of these. You're good to me, I don't know how. You're powerful, I know you can do whatever you want. And I know you know best. And for the life of me, Lord, I don't know how that's best. I think if you, get, if you said yes to my prayer request, that is clearly best for me, in my view. But God, you're wiser than me. And I trust you. So though for the life of me, it does not seem wise, I know it's wiser for me to trust your wisdom over my own wisdom. So thank you for this lack in my life. Thank you for not saying yes to this prayer request yet in my life. That takes alertness, right? That takes watchfulness. That takes a regular prayer life where you're regularly doing this so that you grow in knowing how to thank God for trials in your life. You must trust the goodness of God, the power of God, and the wisdom of God if you would truly thank God with alertness in difficult and trying situations. All right, so that's the third one. And then the fourth plank here for praying consistently. So I, I said here, um, uh, praying with persistence, watchfulness, gratitude, and lastly, 
sorry for a clunky word here. I was trying to think of a one word, I just couldn't get it. So commissional mindedness. Praying with commissional mindedness. God has a great commission. We just read it, Matthew 20, 19. Go therefore and disciple what? All nations. Disciple people towards Jesus. Disciple all nations. That's the great commission. Is that on your mind when you pray? Does that guide your prayer? I, if, I, if I chose one word, I'd say strategically. Pray strategically. But the strategy has to be towards the commission. Okay? Pray strategically. But, and Paul gives a strategy right here in verses 3 and 4. Look at verse 3 and 4. We don't have to spend a lot of time on this, but look. At the same time, while you're praying persistently, while you're praying watchfully, while you're praying thankfully, pray for me. Pray for our team. What should you pray for my team? Pray for us that God may open a door to us for the word. To speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains so that I may make it known as I should. So what is Paul asking for prayer? Guys, pray for me. Pray for our team. Pray that God would give us an open door for the word. What does he mean by an open door? 1 Corinthians 16, 9 and 10 says this. You can, or 8 and 9. You can turn there if you want. I'm turning there. 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9 says this. But he's telling the Corinthians this. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Because, why will I stay in, in Ephesus? Because a wide door for effective ministry has opened for me, yet many oppose me. So Paul has opposition. He has enemies. But he also has what else in Ephesus? An open door. For what? What kind of ministry? Did you guys hear that? And, um, why am I staying? I'll stay there in Ephesus until Pentecost because a wide door for effective ministry has opened for me. So what's the open door? It's an open door of what? Effective. effective ministry. And what is his ministry? To speak the word of God, right? To apply the word of God to people's lives. To help people grow in the gospel and to spread the gospel in the city of Ephesus. And so when Paul says here in Colossians 4, pray that God may open a door for the word. Pray for effective ministry. Pray that, like, I know that God's spreading the gospel, but pray that more people would want to hear about Jesus. That he would open doors in people's lives and open doors in certain communities. Right? We pray that here um, when we pray for Scott and Jenny, like, for certain schools to open, that, that they might have a door there so that they could get in and gospelize that, that whole school. Right? Pray for open doors, for opportunity, for effective ministry. Now, what is it for the word to speak the mystery of Christ? What is the mystery of Christ? Mystery is not something you don't know. Mystery is something you couldn't know. That's why it's mystery. You couldn't know until Christ came and showed it to you. That's what mystery is in the Bible. Something that you're, reading, you're even reading the Old Testament. But there are certain things you just cannot know until Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes, the lights turn on. You're like, oh, now I get it. And part of it is that God would not only save the Jews, but also save the... Gentiles. He would not only live with the Jews, he would also live with the Gentiles. He would not only live with them, this is Colossians 1, 26 now and 27. He would not only live with them, he would actually live in them. And he wouldn't just live in the chosen people of Israel, he would live in Gentiles. God, the God of Israel will live in Gentiles? In their communities, in their body, in their gatherings? Yes. Yes, God will live with you. Christ. God be, will become a man first, right? That's, this is Colossians 1. God, the creator, the son, who created all things, becomes a man, dies for us, rises for us, and then in the end of Colossians 1, he lives in us, Gentiles. That's a mystery. And Paul says, brothers, sisters, BBC, church at Colossae, pray for open doors so I could tell people that God became a man, 
that God died on the cross for sinners, that he rose from the dead. And then he starts, and then he's living in not only Jews, but also in Gentiles. And he's making us one, and he's spreading this so that all Gentiles from all every ethnic people group, from every ethnic people group, would come to be part of this one big family in Christ, who is God, the creator. That's what Paul's praying for. He's praying for a clear word. And so, you know, in LA, we have the gospel everywhere, right? People can go online and hear the gospel. There's gospel tracts, there's Bibles. We have how many translations, how many good translations of the Bible do we have in English? In Southeast LA County, is there a lack of access to the gospel? Yes or no? No. There's access all over, all over Bellflower in Southeast LA County for the gospel. But what, that's not what Paul's asking for. He's not asking for the people to have access for the, to the gospel. He's asking that his team would have an open door to specific people to share the gospel. So in other words, LA does not need gospel access. They have that. What LA needs is a clear word from a personal gospelizer in a divine moment that God gives to bear fruit, right? That's what he's praying for. We got gospel access. What we don't have is people having a specific moment that God has appointed you at your workplace to have a conversation with that person on that day where the gospel is crystal clear to them that I need Jesus. That's what he's asking to pray for. Okay? That's a strategic prayer request. Not just that the gospel spreads, but that, that God would move specific Christians to specific people and specific communities at the specific moment so that it would bear effective, that it would bear great fruit and it would be effective ministry, that people would convert and repent and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, if you're not a Christian, you need to understand what this mystery is. I said it already, but let me just say it very briefly to you. If you're not a Christian and you forget everything else I say, listen to this. This is the main message of Christianity, okay? God created you. God is your creator. He created you in his image to know him and enjoy him forever. But God is not only our creator, he's our judge. And that's a problem for us because not only are we made in God's image to enjoy him, we have sinned against God. We rebel against God. We don't want God for God. We want God for other things that we want to worship. And because of that, we are judged by God and the judgment on us is death. The judgment on us is hell. The judgment on us is damnation in a lake of fire under God's wrath forever and ever and ever. That's the judgment on all humans. And all of us are sinners. That's the bad news. But the gospel is good news. Not only is God creator and judge, God is Christ. Jesus is God. God sent his son, Jesus, into this world. He became a man. He took on human flesh, fully God, fully man, truly God, truly man. He lived the life we should have lived, obeying God, the Father. And yet he dies and takes the wrath of God. He take, God becomes his judge instead of our judge. And you're like, what? God, when God looks at all humanity, there's only one person who does not deserve the judgment of wrath. And that's Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. But God becomes his judge. And he hangs on the cross and God pours out wrath on the Messiah for our sins. Not his sins, for our sins. And he dies for our sins. He's buried on the third day. He rises from the dead, defeating Satan, sin, and death. And so now God is not only Christ, God is King. God is Savior. Now he offers salvation to you. If you will repent from your sins and repent from your goodness and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, 
God will save you. He'll forgive you of your sins. He'll make you his own. He'll live in you and walk with you for the rest of your life. So turn from your sins and turn from your goodness and your religion and trust in Jesus Christ. If you have more questions about that, feel free to ask me or any other uh, members of this church after. We'd love to talk about this more with you, think about it more with you, pray for you as you think about it. So what should we be praying for? An open door for gospelizers and missionaries to gospelize and communicate clearly. Should we still be praying for Paul, yes or no? No, the Colossians were praying for Paul because Paul is still there. Paul is doing no gospelizing now, right? I mean, he's through his letter, but he's not on earth somewhere gospelizing. So we don't pray for an open door for, for Paul. So who should we be praying for? Uh, who should we pray for to have an open door? Who? I heard a few good answers. Missionaries? Christians? What? Other churches? Who else? Keep coming. Yourself? Anyone else? Our church as a whole, other members of our church, and do we have, we are, do we lack access to get the information of who to pray for, right? I, our means of communication, I mean, I'm here leaving a voice message with missionaries all the way across the world this morning saying, hey, how can we pray for you? And they could, they could listen like right away. This is, I mean, what would Paul do with technology, right? With prayer requests and with coordinating mission, like cooperative ministry for the gospel, so pray for gospel workers with mindfulness, watchfulness, and with interest. This means, brothers and sisters, if you're going to pray for missionaries, you have to stay up to date with the information of how they're doing. You can't pray with alertness and watchfulness and, and specificity, which is what Paul's getting at here, when you're just praying generally, God bless all the missionaries in the whole world. You can pray that. That's, you can bless our missionaries in Central Asia. You can pray that. But that's not what Paul's after here. Alertness, watchfulness. What open doors are there with our missionaries right now? Do you know? Now, that's probably my fault. As a pastor, I should be informing you, right? From what I know. So I can tell you, so you can be praying for our missionaries very specifically. They do have names. Our, our, our missionaries have names of people they're praying for right now that they're building relationships with. We can pray specifically for those names, for God to open doors. Pray for our church to have opportunities. Pray for Bellflower. I know you guys are moving to generally Southeast LA County and some of you even Orange County, but God is gracious to us all, right? Um, but we should be praying for Bellflower. God put our building right here. We meet here every Sunday, right? We're meeting here at Bellflower every Sunday. So we should be praying for open doors here. We got neighbors down this street, this street. We got, you know, 80,000 here in the city of Bellflower. Pray for opportunities and open doors here. Pray for clarity to make the gospel known and have others pray for um, for you to communicate the gospel clearly. And why does it, Paul ask for prayer? Doesn't Paul believe God is in control? Is God in control? Yes. Does Paul think God's plan is going to be thwarted or derailed? Will God save all that he has planned to save, yes or no? Yes. So why pray? Why is Paul asking for prayer? Paul, you're a better theologian than all of us. You know more than everyone that God's going to save all of his people. Why are you telling us to pray for open doors? Those doors are, by God's plan, they're going to be opened. The people are going to be saved. Why are you telling us to pray? Anyone have an answer to that? You want to shout out an answer? Why pray? There's a lot of different answers. I'll give you, I was going to give you one, I'll give you two just for the sake of the theology part. The first answer is because God answers prayer. That's just a true statement. God hears the specific prayer and gives a specific answer to your specific request. 
And if you didn't for that specific request, he's not specifically responding to that specific re request, okay? So that's why you should pray specifically and ask for specific things because God will hear it and answer specifically. Secondly, all those doors that God plans to open, does he plan also the prayer that he's gonna answer to open that door, yes or no? Yes, and do you have the opportunity to pray for that door to be part of that eternal plan of God, yes or no? Yes, so why should you pray? Because God is giving you an invitation to be part of the eternal plan of God in real time as he's planning to open certain doors. So pray for our missionaries and the specific relationships they have. God is giving you a chance to have a part specifically in that relationship. Jesus said, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. God answers prayer. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For whoever asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Who among you, Jesus says, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake. If you then who are evil, you evil dads, if you give good gifts, to your children, how much more will the Holy Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him, who pray to him, who ask for those open doors? Be devoted to prayer, brothers and sisters. Do you believe this? That God answers prayer? He does. If you're discouraged, you're saying, PJ, this is all convicting. I don't pray that good. I haven't been praying that well. You're just convicting me of sin. Great. I'm convicted of sin too, just so you know. I have failed to be devoted to prayer. But here's, if you're discouraged, here's my encouragement to you. You know what you could at least do? You could ask other people right now, today, this morning, to pray for you. Hey, I'm not really devoted to prayer, but you might be. Can you pray for me, like right now, and pray for me this week that I would be devoted to prayer? Ask for prayer. It's okay if you're discouraged, but ask others here specifically to pray for your discouragement. Ask people. God has given you a church family to love you and to pray for you. So pray consistently with persistence, watchfulness, thanksgiving and uh, goss, um, commissional mindedness. But that's only the first half. And the second half, which is only two verses, the so last two verses here. Not only should we pray consistently, we should what? Verses five and six, we should what? Walk what? Walk wisely. Look at verses five and six. Act wisely, and the word there is walk. So um, walk wisely, live wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Your speech should always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Act wisely toward outsiders. Now this is in line with the main command, the first command of the whole book of Colossians. What's the first command? Conti it's in Colossians 2 verse 6. Continue walking, continue to walk in Christ. Colossians 2, 6 says, so then just as you receive Christ as Lord, continue to walk in him. That's the main command. Continue to walk in him. And how do you walk in him? By walking in Christ with wisdom towards outsiders, right? Paul's guiding us to the full life of walking in Christ. Now, when he says walk wisely, is wisdom a theme in Colossians? It is a theme in Colossians. I just want to point a few verses here on walking wisely. So look at me. Look, turn in your Bible, Colossians 1, verse 9 and 10. Look at wisdom here. For this reason, we, since the day we heard it, we haven't stopped praying for you. Here's how you can pray with alertness. We're asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all what? Wisdom. Wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, even with outsiders, to please him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. So there, walk in all wisdom that you would know God. 
and walk in wisdom and spiritual understanding. And then when we proclaim Christ, Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him warning and teaching everyone with what? With all wisdom, knowing what fits. Remember we talked about fittingness? What fits when you proclaim Christ? What fits when I know God? How it fits to my life and situation? And then look at Colossians 3.16. I just quoted to you. Ross quoted it to you earlier. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom. So when you learn about God, you should learn about God in wisdom. When you speak Christ to other people, speak Christ in wisdom. When you think about the word of Christ dwelling in you and as Christ is declaring himself to you, may that word dwell in you with all wisdom so that you know what fits between the word and your life and your situation and your relationships and the moment. And then walk wisely. And all of this wisdom is bound up in whom? Look at Colossians 2.3. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All, all wisdom is in whom? In Christ Jesus. So now Paul tells us, walk wisely with Christ, in Christ, for Christ, by Christ. So now this transition from, hey, let's pray that the gospel spreads. You want to make your life count for Jesus? Pray that the gospel spreads. Be a person who prays regularly. But if you want your life to count for Christ, not only should you be praying, you should be acting wisely. You should be interacting wisely with your coworkers and your classmates and your neighbors and those in your household and the children of this church and the guests who walk through those doors who are not Christian, who are outsiders. And to know what fits when we're talking about walking wisely means knowing what fits that specific relationship. Not having a cookie cutter, one size fits all way of engaging every single person, right? It doesn't fit everyone. Now there's two aspects here to walking wisely toward outsiders. With your time, verse five, and with your words, verse six. See that? See that in the, in the passage? Walk wisely with your time in verse 5. Walk wisely toward outsiders with your words in verse 6. So let's look at these one at a time. Walk wisely toward outsiders, making the most of your time. Make use of the time here has to do with the fact that our time with outsiders is limited. Right? Brothers and sisters, I want you to feel, like, I want you to grasp this. There isn't always a next time with your neighbors. I could say that for sure. There will come a time where there is no more next time. Or another way to say that is there is certainly a last time with your neighbors. So make the best use of the time and walk and live and act wisely in light of the time fading and the limited opportunities in front of you. Oh, let's, let's do it this way. I was thinking about my neighbor across the street. Got to uh, celebrate uh, one of their family events just recently. And I was not as gospel intentional, even mindful of it while I'm hanging out with them. But I asked this question. What if you knew that you only had five more interactions with your neighbor or your coworker or your family member? It is limited, right? Let's just say you knew that God gave you special revelation and you knew you only had five more interactions with that neighbor and that non-Christian family member. Would that change the way you act towards them? Yes or no? Yes. Would, it, would, it make, would it sober you up that all of a sudden you're thinking a little bit more wisely? You might be praying a little bit more. You might have a strategy because you only got five more conversations before you're done and you'll never talk to them again in this life. Maybe for all eternity if they never get saved. If you knew that, 
it would sober you up to think, I need to figure this out. Because I don't have forever. There isn't always a next time. There is a last time. And that limitation sobers us up to walk wisely. That clarity and that sobriety is what we should be living with constantly without God telling us how many times we have left. You know, this happens a lot when someone gets a terminal uh, diagnosis or prognosis. I'm not sure which one's the right term there. You know, where they only, you know, they get, a, uh, they get a sickness and you only have a few months left to live. One of the things that, you know, people have called cancer, it's a horrible thing and there's so many burdens and brokenness with it, but some people have called cancer the kind killer. What they mean by that is, because sometimes there's sudden death, right? Where you don't get to say your goodbyes. You're there and then like something suddenly happens, you die and like you wish you would have done all kinds of things before you died. Other people wish they could have said things to you before you died, but you, you died, it was a sudden death. But with, with a terminal um, situation where you only have a few months left, it's the kind killer in the sense that it gives you, it gives you time. But what happens at that time if you're Christian? There's a sobriety where you're going to make the most use of the time, Right? especially with outsiders, because you know, you know you don't have that much time. But guess what, brother and sister? Right now, you need to know you don't have that much time. That sobriety should be here now because your life is a vapor. Okay, so walk with wisdom in regard to your, your time. And then lastly here, verse six, wisdom with your words. Wisdom with your words. Let your speech... Always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Verse 6 is not a command directly. It is in the way it's written, but it's really just um, walk wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time, your word being gracious, or your word is gracious, seasoned with salt. So again, it's just speaking about, it's continuing the idea of walking wisely with your words. Okay, it should be always seasoned with salt, always gracious so that you know how to answer people with wisdom and gospel urgency. When it says, with, um, let your speech always be gracious, that means you should be speaking graciously. In other words, your word should minister God's grace. And who, how do we have God's grace? Who secured God's grace for us? Uh, when we think about God's grace, it focuses on whom? Most, more specifically, Christ. Yeah, on Christ. Yeah, but God, but Christ. It focuses on Christ, right? So in other words, our word should have a Christ centeredness to it, a Christ, a Christ wordness to it, a, a direction that our words are sort of coming from our love for Jesus, coming with Jesus beside us, coming for Jesus's glory in the conversation we're having. That ministers grace because it gives us patience with people as we speak to them. We can, we can handle sin. We can handle shame. We can handle guilt because Christ is gracious. And so we can speak graciously to people. That doesn't mean we speak lightly of sin, but it does mean that we don't speak harshly to people. Do, people, do your neighbors like, I mean, don't we like hanging out with people who are, who bring good news? People who are gracious? I mean, how many people like to hang out with those who are harsh towards them and always criticizing and nipping at them, right? Those are not the people you, you want to be drawn to. That would be a foolish way of gospelizing outsiders, right? But if you're constantly speaking of Christ and with Christ's grace and for Christ's glory with your workers, it will flavor your words so that people want to talk to you more than they want to talk to other people where there's no flavor there. It's bland. So it's, we're talking about the season with salt analogy here. Um, I, I'm just saying season with salt as the analogy of speaking graciously. 
It means that there's flavor there, there's an attraction there. There's a, when, you, when you have something that tastes really good and you're hungry, what do you want to do? You want to go to it and eat it, right? You want to consume it. And that's how you should be with your non-Christian friends. When they think about you and they think about talking to you, it's like, man, when I talk to PJ or when I talk to that person, I just want to talk to them because there's something flavorful and appetizing about talking to them that's fulfilling because we have gracious words. And so if you're going to speak with season with salt and graciously, then that means you need to savor grace yourself, right? And then you need to take interest in the person and have a genuine curiosity about them to know them and serve them and love them and listen to them and bless them. You know why people like talking to you if they like talking to you? It's because you care about them. You pay attention to them. You listen to them. And so to walk, uh, with, walk wisely with wise words means that it's not only speaking, it's listening so that we speak in response to what we hear. And then look at the last part of verse 6. What's the purpose of, of having gracious and seasoned speech? It's not just so that people will like you, so that you may know how you should answer each person as you're giving them the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in this sense, your wise words have to be personal and unique. You should know how you should answer each person. What that means is that it is not a one-size-fits-all script. Sometimes we wish we could have a script. Can I just read it and memorize a script so that whenever I talk to a non-Christian, I just know the script? But anyone... I'm a little bit on my legs. You could ask the professional actors here in this room. But there is room for improv um, improvisation. Am I saying that word right? Improvisation? Improvising is what I... Okay. There's room for improvising. You have the plan generally, but you improvise in the moment. That's how all of life is. I mean, can you imagine with your, with your closest friends if you always followed scripts when you talk to each other? You got to stick to the script. It wouldn't be that good, but you can have a general direction when, hey, I want to talk to you about something. I know where I'm going, but it's, it's a dance, right? There's, imp there's improvising that's going on there because it's not a one-size-fits-all conversation. Don't treat everyone the same who walks through that door. Every guest here is unique, but there's some similarities, so there's a general direction. I love Jesus. I want them to know Jesus. That's my general direction all the time. But then you could improvise in the conversation. How do you learn to be better at improvising? By what? Having more conversations, by practicing, by, 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 by praying and having other people pray for you, by reflecting and, and assessing and reviewing and then continuing to grow in it, by learning from other people who are good at improvising. Let me, let me um, answer this one last question before we apply it and close. What if I can't answer all their questions? Is this passage saying you should know all the answers to all the questions, yes or no? No, obviously not because we can't do that. We can't know all that. So what does it mean so that you should know how you should answer each person? It means that you know how to respond in that situation. That doesn't mean you're always going to solve their problem and convert them right away. But you know the best action given your limitations. So what should you do if you're going to know how to answer each person? You should master the basics of the gospel. You should have many, 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 many conversations with people. You should learn to embrace getting stumped and saying these magic words, I don't know, when they ask you a question. I don't know. That's a good question. Can I get back to you with that question? You should embrace getting stumped and not knowing how to handle particular outsiders because you can pray and ask other people for advice. You can learn and get back to them and then answer them even better. Right? If I just say to you guys, hey, we're gonna, next sermon next week is going to be the top 10 questions, questions non-Christians ask. I want you to memorize them so you know how to answer them. You might remember some of it, but if your non-Christian friend stumps you with one of those, you're gonna go, you're, then you're going to learn it for real, right? 
And then you're gonna go back to them and give them the answer and then you're gonna know how to answer them. And you're gonna know how to answer another person who has a similar question because you answered it when you got stumped. So you don't get to this competency of answering people until you get stumped enough times. So don't mind getting stumped, that's not a loss. That's just part of the journey of growing and answering people. All right, so some application here before we close. Church family, um, bless others, listen to them, eat with them, speak with them, Sabbath with them. We talk about that every week, one of those. You, you guys have opportunities that you'll never get back. You, you, time is always passing, so you need to learn to block out time and engage outsiders wisely and deeply in friendship. I want to encourage you members to partner with other church members together to intentionally engage outsiders. Partner and do, and do that once in a while, but I want you also to take some of these members, look around at certain members in the church and say, can we partner together to intentionally, regularly, and joyfully engage this particular group of non-Christians, my, my coworkers, or my friend, or my family member? Um, we could do that through city groups. That's a formal way of doing it. So join a city group and pray about joining or starting a city group. But even if you don't do it that, through that, just find ways to partner together with other churches or with other Christians in this church to engage outsiders. If you're not a Christian, you might be saying, okay, so this is why I don't like Christianity. Because this whole message is about proselytizing people and imposing your views on others. Christians are so closed-minded, they think that they have the answer, and they're right, and everyone else and all their religions are wrong. Christians are arrogant, and this arrogance is dangerous. No one should tell their neighbors that they are wrong and confidently insist that their group is the only right group that has the truth. You might be thinking something like that. And I want to say... First of all, I agree with, with part of it. Arrogance and ignoring evidence and ignoring reason and sticking your head in the sand is foolish and dangerous to be sure. I agree. But to say no one should tell others they're wrong or no one should insist that their group is correct is what that sentiment is doing in itself. All those who think that no group is wrong, if you disagree with that, you're wrong. That is saying that somebody's wrong. To say it's wrong to say others are wrong and I'm right is a statement doing the same thing of telling someone they're wrong. So you can't avoid telling someone they're wrong. Our best way forward is to think through the actual claims and see if they are indeed true or not true on their own merit. And I invite you to consider who Jesus is and ask questions about it. If you're discouraged and if you feel discouraged that you're not faithfully engaging outsiders, I want to let you know I'm discouraged about that as well. Some brother, uh, one of our brothers, I think Jeff shared a few weeks ago in our Sunday night, the same prayer request to just pray, to, to do better, to, to grow in engaging outsiders. So if you're discouraged, I encourage you to ask people for prayer. Share your burden with others and ask people for encouragement. Praise God that he desires to save, that he desires to save others through you, right? God wants to save others through you and through us. So live a full life of gospel, global gospel growth by praying consistently and acting wisely. All right, brothers and sisters, you can change the world. That's my point. Bring it back to the beginning. You can change the world. You don't have to have a large and obvious platform or demonstrable impact that's obvious to everyone by earthly standards. We don't have to have a big church to have a global impact. What do we need to do? We need to live the full life in Christ for, go for global gospel growth by what? Praying consistently and living wisely. Let God calculate how big your impact is. You don't have to see or know the impact in this life. Just obey God. He'll figure it out. 
But trust the Lord's word here. Live your life in this direction and you will live the full life. You will live the fulfilled life. You will make a global impact as you pray consistently with persistence and watchfulness and gratitude and commissional mindedness and as you walk wisely with your time and your words towards outsiders. That's what Christ did. Listen to Mark 1, 35 to 38. This is what Jesus said. Very early in the morning, or this is what Mark said about Jesus. Very early in the morning. So Jesus spent a whole day gospelizing in the synagogue. He healed, he cast out a demon. He um, went to Peter's house. He healed Peter's mom. He had all these demon-possessed, uh, demon-oppressed people and sick people, and he healed them all night. He had like a full-on Lord's Day, but on a Sabbath day. He goes to sleep, and the next morning, I'll pick up the verse now, Mark 1.35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place, and there he was praying, devoted to prayer. Simon and his companions searched for him, and when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. But what was he busy doing? He was busy what? Praying. He was busy praying. Everyone's looking for you. And then, then our next part is act wisely towards outsiders, right, with your words. And what does he do next? And he said to them, because they said, everyone's looking for you. Come on, let's go to everyone. And Jesus says, no, no. Let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. Here's Jesus illustrating and showing us that when you pray consistently and strategically and busily, then you are being fitted by God to act wisely, to know where you should go and to whom you should go and why you're going where you're going. Jesus prayed consistently with watchfulness, thanksgiving, and commissional mindedness. Then he turned and walked wisely toward outsiders, gospelizing and preaching, where he went as he trained his disciples for their ministry when he would leave. Brothers and sisters, here's good news. We have a Savior and Lord who prayed on earth and still prays consistently for us. Jesus even moves us to pray. We have a Savior and Lord who walked wisely with his time and words and always pointed people towards God's goodness in himself. And now this great high priest prays for you. He empowers us now to, to live with his resurrection life. He preaches his word to us and he gives us his spirit to grow in us, uh, uh, to grow in us wisdom with our time and our words. So I ask one last time, do you want to live a life and have an impact of global gospel growth here in LA and among the nations? Do you want to enjoy Christ, a Christ-centered life that is full and fulfilled where Christ is not marginalized but put in the center and exalted? If that's you, then trust and follow Jesus as he calls you and moves you to pray consistently and to walk wisely. Father, help us to walk wisely and pray consistently. Help us not be discouraged and overly uh, romanticizing what global impact looks like. Lord, you know what global impact looks like. We don't know that, but we trust you and we trust your word. So we pray for all of the 142 members of Bethany Baptist Church, that each one would be convinced and encouraged and motivated and inspired to pray consistently and walk wisely so that our lives count for all eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. All right, friends, take the next three minutes or